My name's Mike, in case anybody doesn't know me. <laughs> kind of seems that way to introduce myself. Uh, been a while, for which I apologize, but uh, obviously a few circumstances beyond control. But anyway, good to be here this morning, and uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, get back into this. We uh, had just just started, I guess we spent two weeks looking at what I called a, the introduction there, special beginning to a very special book, um, and I did not update my slides yet, so that's why the projector's not set up and everything. I'll give you another handout here in just uh, just a moment or two. But uh, if you remember Revelation chapter 1, very special book, very special book, the book of Revelation. Of course, um, that could be said about a lot of books of the Bible, obviously. Any particular book that you happen to be focusing on and studying at any one time can be a very special book of the Bible. Uh, but Revelation is very unique in many ways and uh, has some special purposes and uh, so on about it. Let's do this this morning. Let's go ahead and just have a word of prayer, and uh, then I'm going to make a few remarks, hopefully not too terribly many, uh, in way of review, and then I'll have you all read uh, certain verses in chapter 1 this morning, and then we'll just jump in and uh, press on uh, a little further here. Uh, in the book, all right? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, do just a little bit of review, all right? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, this special book of your word, and we pray that you'd help us as we consider it again this morning. uh, We pray that you would uh, open our understanding and our hearts, and then most of all, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for how this book reveals the Lord Jesus in some very special ways. And we'll get to see a little bit of that this morning. And uh, we thank you for that. Help us to love you, love the Lord Jesus as we ought. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right. Uh, If you remember, we, we just, again, started looking at the book of Revelation, basically looked at the first three verses and then spent the second week uh, focusing mostly on verse 19, which, which really gives an indication as to how the book is structured. And in understanding that, that, I believe, helps to understand the book of Revelation as well, because it, it gives us some indication of what the Lord intended with the book, all right? Uh, of course, uh, Again, in the first three verses, there's a number of just unique things that we can see about Revelation compared to other books. Obviously, there's a little bit longer of an introduction here. In fact, as we'll see when we get into this morning's particular lesson in the handout I'll give you, uh, you could delineate, and I, I did in that, delineate uh, the first three verses as kind of an introduction, and then really the, the actual greeting, what you think of as a normal salutation, like other books of the Bible, you know, have start out, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he wishes grace and peace upon whoever it is he's writing to, that kind of thing. Um, That really doesn't start till verse 4, and then really it's a little bit longer than most verses, 4 through 7 particularly, Uh, and then you really see the, the 
the, the first part of what John is writing about in Revelation beginning in about verse 9. All right, so we'll, we'll get into that here momentarily. But a lot of unique things about the book of Revelation. And we'll mention some of those here momentarily. But um, it is a special, very special book. And this is a, a special beginning of that book. And if you remember, just to highlight really the one thing I want to remind you of is in Revelation verse nine, chapter 1, verse 19, remember that self-revealing outline, all right? John was told to write the things which he had seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, when we get to that verse in, in the course of the chapter, we'll mention a little bit more about that, but we wanted to take some time uh, at the beginning and just kind of uh, talk about that structure and how that's important, because really... Uh, the book of Revelation, for the most part, all right, and is still concerning future things. It's a book of prophecy of what the Lord is saying will happen in the future. And obviously from the time John wrote it, but that's been some, you know, 2,000 years ago. But even from the day that we're meeting here today, which I believe is November 12th, uh, 2023, from our his, from our point in history right now, it is still, those chapters, verse, or chapters 4 through 22 in the book of Revelation are still yet future. Now, uh, the reason that's important to understand is because there are many in Christendom, in the uh, realm of professing Christianity, that believe these things have already happened. And if you have any kind of a grasp on world history, you can understand these things have not happened, the things that are written about in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's been a lot of bad things that have happened, and we look at the world in which we live right now, I mean, but, you know, there's still no comparison with history and present day to what is written about in the book of Revelation, what will be happening here on this earth. These are written of future things, and that's important. Because when you think about it, let's just for a second think about this, all right? The prophecy in the Old Testament, all right? Now, some of that has yet to be fulfilled, but the things that we can clearly see that the Old Testament prophesied that has happened, happened how? In a very literal way, just like it was prophesied, all right? Uh, and, and the thing is, with, with prophecy that has yet to come, all right, to be, you know, come to pass, it's reasonable then to expect that it will be filled in the, fulfilled in the same way, in a literal sense, all right? And the only way that you can uh, look at the book of Revelation as something that has already happened is to not take prophecy literally, all right? And, and that's called most of the time allegory, all right? You take things allegorically, you kind of spiritualize. They have this spiritual meaning. There's not a literal meaning to it. All right, and much of professed Christianity looks at the Bible that way, by the way. All right, we, we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, all right, through history and grammar and, and the, you know, everything has its, its proper setting and so on. But so we believe that the things that are written about in the book of Revelation will happen in a literal way, very literally. All right, now there are symbolic things used in the book of Revelation to convey those things. 
but for the most part, they're explained in the book of Revelation, if not other parts of the Bible. All right? So, uh, because you think about this, God wants us to understand. All right? I mean, think about the very first verse there in Revelation 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to what? To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. The intention, or, or God's intention behind it is to show us what's coming to pass. Not to, you know, make us scratch our head and be bewildered about things, but to help us to understand, all right? Now, the book of Revelation does warrant some careful consideration of things, yes, but it is to be taken literally, all right? And, and that's very important, okay? And I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but that's very, very important to understand as we think about uh, the book of Revelation, all right? So as we get into this now, again, we, I, don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time revisiting those first three verses, but let's do this. I'll ask uh, pastor to start, and then just you all just kind of continue reading around in the normal manner that we do um, up through, from verse 4, beginning at verse 4 through the end of chapter 1, so through chapter 20, or through verse 20 of chapter 1, all right? So whoever gets that verse, that's the end, all right? So go ahead, Pastor. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also is the brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and behold, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, is one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paths with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like as you find grass, and if they burn in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Say the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. 
the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. We'll stop right there. Could you pass those out, Tim, please? All right. Having, having read that all together, that kind of gives more of a contextual look at this. All right. Again, uh, this, is, this is moving on here in, in Revelation. There's a lot of unique things about Revelation, and some of those are on that handout uh, that, that Tim's passing out right now. And I'm not sure that I'm going to take time to go into all of that, but... Uh, or review all of those. You can look at those uh, on on your own. But let me just let me do mention this: that the Book of Revelation, uh, numerous sources indicate this. So I would say it's probably true, <laughs> uh, but I, I can't give you an exact verification, so to speak. But um, the Book of Revelation is said to quote, allude to, refer to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. I think many people probably don't think about that when they think of Revelation and, you know, the future, but that's important because, you know, the book of Revelation is kind of, and I think we may have mentioned this in the first week that we talked about Revelation, really all the things that you see being begun in the Bible somewhere or another come to their, you know, they, they all come home, so to speak. They're all tied together really, in the book of Revelation. And so it makes sense that the book of Revelation refers to so much uh, of the Old Testament. In fact, I don't have this on your paper, but I wanted to, I, I didn't have time to type it out, actually, but I took a picture of it, so I want to read this to you, all right? It's, it's, we'll take just a minute, but this refers to that fact of all the Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. Now, this list is based on uh, Harold Wilmington's uh, Guide to the Bible, which is a very good reference book for just, just obviously like any other book, you know, you take some things with a grain of salt, but, um, but it's a very helpful resource in a lot of respects in Bible study, all right? So uh, according to him, he, he documents this, that uh, Revelation ref- quotes, alludes, refers to at least 24 Old Testament books. That's quite a bit, right? 24. So it's not all from one place. It's spread out throughout the Old Testament. However, there are some concentrations, all right? And he lists those 24 books and how many times, all right? So 13 are from the book of Genesis, 27 in Exodus, 4 in Leviticus, 3 in Numbers, 10 in Deuteronomy, 1 in Joshua, 1 in Judges, Judges, one in Second Samuel, one or six from Second Kings, one from First Chronicles, one from Nehemiah, forty-three from the Psalms, two in Proverbs, seventy-nine from the Book of Isaiah, twenty-two from Jeremiah, forty-three from the Book of Ezekiel, fifty-three from the Book of Daniel, which only has twelve chapters, by the way. Two from Hosea, eight from Joel, nine from Amos, one from Habakkuk, two from Zephaniah, 15 from Zechariah, 
and one from Malachi. I thought that was interesting, uh, all the, the variety of things, but again, a lot of concentration from several of the, the big prophetic books of the Old Testament. There is a, a strong correlation. Can I get somebody to turn? There's two verses in time here. One's right now and one's going to be down the road, but I need read from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. All right, Tim? And then in a little bit, Daniel chapter 7, Verse 13, I believe it is, all right, Pastor? That would be just a few minutes down the road. But um, this is an interesting thing when you think about this. Daniel, of course, was a very, is a very important book in the Old Testament when it comes to prophecy and particularly many of the things that are, are written about in the book of Revelation. In fact, many times in like a Bible college setting, the book of Daniel and Revelation are studied together, all right? There's a strong connection between the two. Um, but listen, just listen to this. You've, you've read this, if you've read your Bible through and, and all. But in, at the closing of the book of Daniel, all right, Daniel's seen a lot of things. I mean, and they had a great physical impact on him, even, uh, let alone a spiritual impact. But he's told to just don't even try to write anything out. Just stop is kind of the idea. In fact, read verse 4 of chapter 12, please, Tim. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. It's as if Daniel was shown, you know, he, he got to see prophetically certain things that, you know, God, the, the Lord just told him, okay, just stop, just seal it up, don't even write anymore. And then it does seem as if the book of Revelation picks up and continues on from where Daniel was told to stop. All right, We'll get to that other verse here in just a, a few moments. Um, uh, so just, just kind of have that ready if you would. But as you, as you look at the book of Revelation, again, there's, there's just so much wonderful uh, things here. But really, it's the, the book, we've, we've said this, and you could say this about the Bible, of course, in general, and, and all, you know, really all the parts of the Bible, but the book of Revelation is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is. And, and you know, it starts out, verse 1, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, all right? It's the revealing, the unveiling, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And Revelation shows Jesus Christ in a way, perhaps, that no other book of the Bible does in a very, very vivid sense. And uh, obviously this is important. But before that, you know, there's a great vision. You guys read the verses, a great vision that John sees of the glorified Christ here in chapter 1. But before we get to that, we see really a, uh, a salutation, a greeting from John being begun here, given in verse 4. And so let me just kind of take a few moments and go over these verses before we get into that that, that great, wonderful vision that John saw there. And, and, and we want to look at these. I, I tried to structure these in a way that these are all, although it's John writing, he's writing to the churches, so on, but these are all about the Lord Jesus still. All right? And that's why I titled the lesson, Oh, What a Savior, all right? Because it's all about Him. So first of all, in verses 4 and 5, first part of 5 anyway, you can see the Savior's description. It's John, right, writing, John to the seven churches. That's, that's normal for any New Testament book, the writer and then who it's written to. Uh, but he still, he has this, 
this emphasis, special emphasis on Christ as he's even introducing these things and greeting uh, who he's writing to, which is the churches here. He says uh, to the seven churches in Asia, grace be unto you. Again, that's kind of normal, but notice how he elaborates on that. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. All right, now uh, some people argue and wonder exactly who this is talking about, okay? And I'll, I'll, tell, I'll give you what I believe the, the idea here is. Um, but, of course, the human writers identified who he's writing to, the seven churches, all right? And then their names specifically a little bit down later here. But he wishes grace and peace upon his recipients. Every human desperately needs both of these, of course. Both grace and peace are related to salvation. Both grace and peace are related to Christian living and, and, and God's the way that God wants us to live. But uh, in, in realizing who is stated as the source of this grace and peace, one sees a dogmatic description of the, on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? um, and, and then notice, first of all, if you're following in your outline, you see, notice his deity. All right? he, he says... Grace and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now, that could be a description of the Lord Jesus, but hold on, all right? This one who, obviously, that's a description of eternality, all right? From our perspective as humans, we're bound by time. We look at time always as past, present, or future. That's just the way time works for us, right? Now, God is eternal, and this is a description of God's eternality here. He's the one who is, he's the one who was, always has been, and he's the one who, who will be, who always will be. It's eternal, eternal all right? And then, um, secondly, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, this might seem like a, uh, an odd and interesting uh, description to some, and, and let me just say for time's sake and because in this lesson in chapter 1, I want to focus the attention on the Lord Jesus, we're going to put a pause on explaining about this phrase till a little bit later. It comes up about four more times in Revelation, okay, so we'll get to it uh, rather quickly. But uh, I believe this, this is, well, let me just keep reading for a second. Seven spirits are, which are before his throne. So the his is referring back to the first description, the one who is uh, um, and was and which is to come. His throne, okay, seven, the, seven, the seven spirits which are before his throne, and then notice verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, okay? So... I, I, I believe it's very reasonable to take this as this is a description of the triune God here. All right, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? Grace and peace are wished, and they can only come from God, all right? God, who He is, Father, Spirit, and Son. That's the order that they would be in this particular passage, all right? Uh, they're not always in that order, it's changed up and so on, but, um, and then, so we see this description, but the point being here of this is, when it relates to the Lord Jesus, is that this ties him in with and makes him equal with God the Father, God the Spirit, 
All right? Um, in his role, in his function, if I can say it that way, as God the Son, there are ways, and obviously, where he takes a subservient role to the Father. But he is equal in his being and essence with the Father. All right? That's stated clearly in the Bible. And I'm not going to take a long time to talk about that. Stated very clearly in the Bible. In fact, here in the book of Revelation, all right, we're going to see it here in chapter 1 as well. If this is God the Father being described, and I believe it is, as the one which is, which was, which is to come, we're going to see the same description is given very explicitly of Jesus himself, all right? Making him equal with the Father, all right? So just hold on, we'll get to that, all right? So he says, from the triune God, all right? Now notice, you see some things about Jesus here, his deity, obviously, to, to be equal with Father and Spirit. He, he obviously is God. He's God the Son. And I put some references there. We're not going to take time to uh, look up all those right now or even any of them at this point. But also, not only is his deity emphasized here, but his humanity. We saw this in the book of Hebrews, right? Begins with what? The deity uh, in his person. Then it moves on to his humanity. And that's a normal way of doing that for several reasons, all right? He was God before he was man. He's always been God, but there's a time when he took on humanity, when he became a man. All right, but notice some indication here in verse 5 of his humanity, all right? He is the first, well, I got ahead of myself there, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, who is the faithful witness, a threefold description here, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. All three of these refer to something involved with his humanity, all right? He's the one that came to bear witness of the Father. And he is the faithful witness. Literally, it's, it's very emphatic here. The idea is he's the witness, the faithful one. He is the one who is all faithful. We, we saw a little bit about that in the book of Hebrews, if you remember, because of his deity, his humanity, and his faithfulness, all right? He is superior in his person. He's unique in his person, uh, and so on. So, you see, his humanity, the faithful witness, uh, again, so many, th and we, we put a little bit of uh, description there. I'm not going to get into all of that right now, but the first begotten of the dead. He's the first fruit, fruits of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and his resurrection is so important in so many ways to everything about biblical Christianity. So many ways. And we're not going to take time to uh, get, you know, go down that trail right now either, but it's very, very, very important. All right? And he's also called the prince. And literally the idea is he's the chief one. He's the chief of the kings of the earth. There's two words here in that same sentence that have to do with royalty, if you want to say, and the one which you think of typically in human rankings, I guess you might say, uh, the first one is, is generally used lower than the second one, all right? I mean, I guess, you know, we think of a king as being higher than a prince, but that's not the case here. 
The case is, what it's, and, and what it's obviously saying, the point is, he is the, the highest, he's the chief one, he's the prince of all the kings. Very similar to the statement that we see later of him, that he is the king of kings. It could have been worded that way here. really has the same, the same effect, the same meaning. Right? So you see his humanity. And by the way, in the rest of this chapter, this part is emphasized a lot. In fact, this is one of, really, really, you know, the book of Hebrews emphasizes the priesthood of the Lord Jesus uniquely compared to the rest of the New Testament. The book of Revelation emphasizes his princehood or the fact that he's the king more so perhaps than the rest of the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's one of the chief attributes that you see of the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation, the fact that he is the, the one and only deserving ruler of this world. Because of who he is and also because of what he has done, he deserves it. And that's part of what's the idea there in Philippians chapter 2, that because he was, you know, faithful, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he has been given a name that is above every name, all right? He is who he is, and he deserves it from that, but because of his complete faithfulness, because of what he did in his total obedience to the will of the Father, he earned it too, you could say. He deserves it both ways, by virtue of inheritance, but also by virtue of earning it. And no, that can be said of no one else. No one else. All right? And then notice again, just, I, I just call this, notice the reality. The point of all this is Jesus is eternally God the Son, become man to carry out the plan of God for this world. Which, when we think of the gospel, all right? When we think of the gospel, what do we normally think of? We think of it like a statement in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, all right? And in a way, obviously, that's kind of like the important hub of the gospel, but I believe the gospel is far more encompassing than that. I mean, because like the content of Revelation, there's a lot of focus on the future and what Christ will do yet, not just on what he's done. In fact, if you want to say by number of words written about, there's far more emphasis on what he's yet to do than what he's done. All right? But all of that, I believe, is really inclusive in the whole message of the gospel. Part of the gospel message is he not only came and he died on a cross, rose again, that's how God, you know, that's the basis for salvation, but there's far more to the plan of God than that. He's coming back, and he's coming back as judge and ruler of this world, and so people need to be ready. That, that's, there's, that's all really, truly part of the gospel message. And sometimes I think in today's evangelism and Christianity, we, we tend to think, we, you know, we, we leave that out. We don't even think about that so much. But he's coming again. That is, uh, and, and the, the whole message of the fact that Jesus is coming again is seen throughout the New Testament, and it's really the motivation to respond to God. It's not so much that because if you don't respond to God, you're going to die and go to hell, but it's, he's coming back. 
and you're going to have to face him. That's, that's the, the whole tenor, if you want to say, of the message of the New Testament, and it's really brought to bear here in the book of Revelation. All right, this is the reality. He is Almighty God who became the Savior and is coming again. Notice in, uh, let, me, let me keep reading here, all right, um, and actually we'll go back to that in a second, but jump down to verse 8. Uh, or verse 7, rather, for a second. Behold, he cometh, that's the Lord Jesus, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who, uh, which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is not speaking of the rapture, this is speaking of the second coming of Christ to this earth, which is primarily the focus of the book of Revelation, not the rapture. And in some ways, that you might think that's interesting because it's written to the Lord's churches, all right? And the churches are to be looking for the rapture, all right? However, the, the, the climactic point is not really the rapture. It's the second coming of Christ to this earth when he will demonstrate his true relationship to humanity when he comes again. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. And we see that coming to pass in chapter 19, which is a ways down the road. All right? But you see uh, these things about, about the Lord Jesus, his reality. All right? So he's coming again. Then notice verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I'll talk more about that verse in just a second. And then you see throughout here, you see uh, John, uh, verse 9, he, he hears this voice, he turns, right? But, but the voice said to him, what? I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. All right? And we know clearly from what John writes that who is speaking right there is not God the Father, but God the Son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The same description, and again, my point being, the same descriptions are given here of God the Father, or at least some of the same descriptions, God the Father, God the Son. In, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, all right, the, 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 the prophecy there of John the Baptist coming to prepare the way who is it in that verse, I think it would be verse 3 of Isaiah 40, who is it that the Bible, the Scriptures state right there that, Jesus, that John, excuse me, is coming to prepare the way for? Now, it's not meant to be a trick question, but if you, if you went back there and looked, all right, it says that he's coming to prepare the way for the, the Lord. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of times some, particularly some groups, try to make a great big distinction between... Now, you all are probably familiar enough that when you see that particular name in the Old Testament, all right, that stands for the Hebrew word that we would say is Jehovah, right? So, who is Jehovah? Is it only God the Son? Or, excuse me, only God the Father? Obviously, in that passage, God the Son is included. I mean, there's, there's a lot uh, that you could talk about with that, but my point being, all right, the same descriptions are given for Father and Son many times. 
because they're one. <laughs> and it's, you know, it, we cannot, I don't believe, truly rationalize out and understand the concept of the triune God. It, it, it's beyond our human ability. Now, one day, I think we'll understand it, I guess you could say, because we'll, you know, we'll see him, we'll be there, and somehow he, I mean, he's one God, but he exists in three persons. But you see an equation, an equality, I guess I should say, rather, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All right? Um, but he's called the first and the last. He's, I mean, so, I mean, again, you could say Je- Jesus is Jehovah as well. All right? So notice the, the, the second point there, the, de- the Savior's deeds. All right? Now we're going to go back to verse 5 here. And basically, and this is alliterated and so on, but uh, in, in, in becoming the Savior and carrying out the plan of God, Jesus has redeemed a special people to God. And notice some of the description of what he's done, the deeds, his work, what he did when he came. All right, Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, this is still the idea of he's wishing grace and peace, and from the Father, Son, and now, or the Father, Spirit, and now Son, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. We, we mentioned that. These are statements that can be true, really be fulfilled through his humanity, what he took on. All right. But then unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, there's some wonderful things here. Wonderful things. All right? Notice just quickly here the Savior's deeds. He loved his people. You know, that's something that's so different about the message of the Bible from every other religious message out there. God is... I mean, he's higher than us. He's separated from us. He's holy, and that's what holy means, really. He's just, he's on his own. He's on his own par. I mean, there's, there's no comparison to him. He is set apart. And as God's people were to be holy, were to you know, live set apart from the world, right? But, but he is, I mean, he's one of a kind. There's, you know, but at the same time, part of his character it's interesting that there are statements the Bible makes. God is holy. He, he is righteous. He is just. Uh, but he is love, according to 1 John. That's a statement made. It doesn't just say that he loves. Now, he does love, but it says he is love. That cannot be said of us. I mean, as loving as we should try to be and grow in that, we are not love. I mean, so where does love come from in the human race? It comes from God, and part of the fact of what, you know, God created man in his own image, after his own likeness, right? I mean, God God instilled in man certain characteristics that are reflections of God's characteristics. Now, everything that God put in man, to some degree or another, has been tainted by sin, right? 
I mean, when the world thinks of love, it has a whole terrible misconception of what love is. The world's idea of love is rooted in selfishness. God's love is selfless love. But, it, I mean, but he loved us, okay? And, and, and I've got to move on here. But he loved us, and that is so different from every other thing. All right? And he washed us. He not only loved his people, but he washed his people. He did what was necessary to clean us up from our own defilement, our own corruption. He's the one that makes the difference. All right? Which involves, of course, you know, forgiveness of sins, but also you know, the, taking care of the negative side of it, but it also is a positive. He puts righteousness in his people. And we have the righteousness of Christ. Um, and he anointed us, all right? He made us kings and priests unto God. That's an interesting concept. Now, having just recently looked at the book of Hebrews, that may not seem that strange. But without that, I mean, really the two generally don't ever go together. They're always different, kings and priests, right? And both of those were anointed people in the Old Testament. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and both were appointed by God, right? But you have the example of Melchizedek, of course, in the Old Testament. He is said to be what? Priest and king. Only person that I know of in the Old Testament that has that description given of him. And then, of course, you have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, through the book of Hebrews, all right, shown to be both king and priest. All right? But interestingly enough, the Bible teaches that part of what God does when he saves a person, they become a priest and king. First uh, Peter 2 talks about we have a royal kingly idea, royal priesthood. Now, it, it's been given to us, all right? It's put on us. It's, it's not of us or anything. It's not because who we are or whatever in, in that sense, but it's because of who we belong to, who we are in Christ, all right? But, I mean, there's, there's probably a lot of things you could talk about with these, but we can't uh, because we are uh, out of time, really. But, I mean, there's so much. Just, I mean, just even in talking about these, just these little statements that you could read over and not give much of a second thought about, uh, about the Lord Jesus, but this is, the book of Revelation is all about him. And we haven't even got to what you might say is the icing on the cake in chapter one yet, this great vision here, which, uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get to that next, next Sunday morning there. But we'll see his, his declaration, how, how, uh, what is declared about him here and, and how he declares himself. We'll, we'll uh, Lord willing, look at that. So I guess I had to put that verse, Daniel chapter uh, 10, on hold for now um, on that. But let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning as we think about the Lord Jesus and, and just who he is, Lord, we, sh you know, I... It's far easy to talk about this and really not be broken by it, not be humbled by it, because this is, this is amazing, who the Lord Jesus is. And the fact that you loved us, 
who, there's nothing in us to make you love us. But you loved us, and you washed us, and you made us something in Christ. And we, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, just consider these things throughout this next week and, and allow you to work in our hearts and lives and be used for you. We pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.